0: rigged elections, corruption, autocracy, the silencing of political dissidents, KGB kidnappers, phony bomb threats, torture, the oppression of activists and journalists alike. It's all going down in Belarus under the brutal regime of Alexander Lukashenko, who still clings to power after 26 years. So, to discuss, I've brought on a Belarusian citizen along with my contact who are time step in to help translate. To protect both them and their friends and family, we will have withheld their identities, so once again, this episode will be audio only. I hope you enjoy. Alexander Shultzson's quote here, and he once wrote, for us in Russia, communism is a dead dog. Well, for many people in the West, it is still a living lion. It's like, I think this quote perfectly encapsulates the situation. There we have an oppressive autocracy, uh, which expressly defines itself by its Soviet past. Soviet symbols are still proudly displayed, and they still have the notorious intelligence service, you know, reminiscent of the KGB. More than much of the industry is state-controlled, and the country still practices a soft form of imposed autarky with Russia, since it is heavily sanctioned by the West. So for someone like me, looking from the outside in, Belarus seems like a strange anachronism of a bygone Cold War. Much of the Belarusian elites act as if the Cold War never ended, and to an extent they're right, American-Russia relations are at an all-time low. Although under George W. Bush, relations seem to thaw, as both Russia and the United States grappled with the shared consequences of radical Islamic terrorism. Mr. Obama reversed course and was openly antagonistic to Russia. Relations have especially soured since the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, which replaced a pro-Russian government with pro western one. Moreover, the presence of John McCain in Kiev was an open affront to Moscow and a sign that the U.S. was still interested in expanding the borders of the EU and NATO into the former Soviet republics. And of course, this led to the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014 and the beginning of the Ukrainian civil war with the creation of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic, in the Donbass region. In many ways, Belarus frames itself as a lap dog of Russia, shielding her from the decrepit influence of the West. So I want to throw that over to you. How do you, how do you think about that? I mean, that, that's our opinion we get from the, from the West. I mean, that's how Belarus is framed to us that it's some sort of like old Soviet rump state. You know, it's never really fully modernized and come into the 21st century. How, how much is that correct?
1: I don't know if uh, we're talking about my perspective, I can actually agree with this. Um, words that appears here about laptop. Actually, for a lot of Belarusians nowadays, it's um, really not clear why Russia keeps uh, just uh, topping on the back of Lukashen- Lukashenko's back about everything that he does. Uh, Russia lately, gave a lot, lot of support, it keeps getting, giving money, giving military power, so it's actually a mystery for a lot of even Belarusians why it happens.
0: And and what do you think, I mean, has, you've lived in uh, other countries now, you've lived in the so-called West, does, you know, has Belarus not modernized, is it stuck in this old Soviet past, like, that's how it's portrayed to us?
1: Uh, actually, I can see that Belarus um, improved. If we're talking about de- democratization and uh, about uh, being more modern, uh, in the last three or even five years, it became um, more clearly that Belarus is evolving. Um, but yes, even uh, even with this evolution, uh, for the, from the past years it's still pretty much soviet and it's still in the Soviet, under soviet influence
0: yeah and when we were talking before uh we started here um you mentioned that a lot of the uh um you know lukashenko's friends these elites they can just come in and take over industries it's kind of kleptocratic right i mean the uh, rule of law is not really a standard is uh, uh, abuse of power from the people at the top. Is that, is that correct? Uh,
1: unfortunately, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, uh, when we talked earlier, it still happens. You even uh, as a business owner, you know, can't really be safe and you can, can't can really um, know that even a law will protect you uh, from your government because government actually has unlimited power and now you um, for the past year, we just uh, starting to see it in, even in a bigger scale.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think so a lot of the we saw mass protests, a real reject, a rejection of the Lukashenko regime in this last 2020 election. And a lot of this is, you know, like come up because of the people are fed up, especially the young people who didn't grow up under the Soviet system. You know, they don't have much nostalgia for this past. maybe older generations do and who lived under the soviet union and uh you know people just fed up with the autocracy especially when they can you know look over the border uh to the baltic countries you know lithuania estonia latvia and they see thriving democracies which are also former soviet countries and so there's a real sense that people are just fed up uh and lukashenko's been in power for like two decades now he needs you know people need to move on and have an actual democratic Uh, system. And so that brings us to the 2020 elections. And uh, Svetlana Tishkanouskaya, how do you say that? Say that for me again, sorry.
1: In Belarusian is Svetlana Tishkanouskaya. In Russian
0: it's Svetlana Right. So she was this former teacher who wanted to run as an independent and, you know, like seemingly came out of nowhere, right? Like, she's kind of a nobody. She wasn't involved in politics really before, um, but she kind of, like, rallied a whole bunch of the youth, especially behind her in this optimistic yeah, idea that there's going to be change. Do you want, you want to talk about her?
1: Yeah, absolutely. For me, she is just a role model. I, uh, for, the, for this past year that she has been a Belarusian leader, leader uh, president-elect, I have seen her a couple of times, and every time I just uh, I just have no words because... Uh, can you imagine that, that, that she, this woman, this lady, she just lived her whole life being teacher, being an interpreter, and then she just was a housewife. And uh, then just out of nowhere, her husband, who was more involved in politics, but uh, he started as a blogger. He just uh, drove uh, all around the Belarus, and uh, uh, he was doing interviews with uh, just uh, Belarusian people from villages. He talked uh, with them about uh, this simple life that they have, about the problems, and just he was so fed up with. Uh, with this life, with their life, that he decided to make a change, and uh, he wanted to take uh, his voice and uh, become a president. President, of course, he knew that uh, he wouldn't become a president, but he decided to at least try. And then he has been thrown to jail because that this is how things are done in Belarus. If you want a change, if you brave enough, you just will find yourself in a jail, in a jail. And just uh, Svetlana decided that uh, maybe she will just continue what he started. And she came and uh, registered herself as a candidate. You um, know, this President rally, if you can say that. and. Uh, Nobody, even herself, believed that it's possible for her to be chosen uh, as a president of Belarus. But uh, people made a decision to elect her as a president. Of course, uh, Lukashenko didn't like it, and uh, she just was made to leave the Belarus. And now she is doing more than even Lukashenko did. Um, if we're talking about being a democratic leader, if we're talking about uh, just um, making uh, political relations among the world, because she is just uh, great in that, and she, is, she she made such an improvement. Uh, uh, <laughs> I wanted to say that she did so work the last year, that it was, uh, uh, she uh,
2: she really she really she really made the huge huge advances in the way of making the country more democratic. It's really hard to it's really hard to imagine uh, that it would be possible at all uh, in in a country like Belarus in retrospect. Yeah, and
0: so um, maybe you want to talk a bit more about uh, I mean, just the fact that she's a woman. I mean, in the West, this isn't totally unusual. We have a ton of female MPs. Great at what they do, and it's just normal. But, um, at least from my perception, from what I know about Russia and Belarus, it seems that these are very misogynistic societies. I mean, there's a large report of uh domestic abuse against women, um, there's killings of women often than spouses. This is a huge issue, especially in Russia. I mean, so what does it mean just that there's this woman doing this? Yeah, uh, as you
1: said, in uh, West society. It is just more common that um, women can can be political leaders uh, and etc. In Belarus, Russia, and post Soviet Union countries, it is really a big deal uh, because uh, uh, Lukashenko, um, when all of this started, uh, he uh, just was laughing about that that, uh, she may be a good cook, but uh, a housewife will never rule the country. and uh, that our laws just uh, aren't made for women, and uh, so on and so forth. And uh, now we're seeing Tikhanovskaya is doing better, a lot better uh, as a politician, that he and uh, all of his friends and uh, his uh, allies, and probably they are really pissed about that.
0: (laughs) And so is this, uh, is this different for the younger population? Is it really just uh, deep-seated misogyny in the older generations? I mean, you saw a huge young vote and a young presence come out in support of Svetlana. So, I mean, does this show signs of changing in, in the Belarusian culture, or is it just an anomaly? Uh,
1: I think actually, all uh, the generation might think about her as uh, something unexpected uh about you know when women in power is really something in common but for younger generation uh, i think we are glued to that we just uh, in our minds we just uh, are able to accept uh, women in power women being uh, political leaders and actually i think we uh, i by we i mean once again the younger younger generation of belarusians are ready for uh this more tolerant more uh, equal and uh, more democratic uh leaders
0: and how, how does this reflect yes. for women? how does this reflect on women's rights in general i mean i know before the the interview here we were talking about abortion rights in poland i mean how is it similar in belarus i mean are, are women free to do? Do they have the same rights that they do in, in the West here? Or is it, is it heavily repressed?
1: If we're talking about Poland, actually, uh, if, and if you're talking about those abortion laws that just appeared uh, not long ago in Blooms, people, I mean, women just have more rights to do what they want with their bodies. But uh, about other topics, women may be not as free. In Belarus, as uh, they be in other countries, there's still a lot of misogynistic uh, points of views. If we're talking about job, maybe um, in basically everywhere you can feel it. But um, I may I might also not be up to date because I haven't been in Belarus more than a year already. Uh, and actually, I think that. Uh, for the past year, it was a lot of uh, improvement. Uh, if we're talking about uh, what society thinks and what society's perception on those topics.
0: And so, do you think? Um, do you think she has a chance, Svetlana? That is, of coming back. I mean, are we going to see more of her? Do you think she has an actual chance of, of uh, you know? being the leader of the country in maybe 10 years? Or, or are you not optimistic for that kind of change? Do you think Lukashenko is gonna be there till he dies?
1: Uh, I want to believe in the future for Belarus and for everyone. So I really hope that she would be able to be a political leader in a new Belarus. But as she uh, says, as she said several times, she would like to, uh, make a new elections, new fair and clear elections, and uh, she wouldn't uh, take actually uh, she, she wouldn't uh, be part of those elections. She wouldn't be a candidate candidate to, to president for Belarus on these new elections. But I actually think she is capable of being a great politician of uh, and a great democratic leader as she is now.
0: All right. Well, that that that's hopeful, at least. I mean, like sometimes you see the you know the disappearance of political leaders. I mean, two of her supporters, uh, who are prominent figures in the opposition, we had a uh, Valery Cep- Spreklako. Uh, he he fled to Russia with his family, and then uh, Viktor Babaika. He was arrested. Uh, um, yeah. Do you want to do you want to talk about that and the disappearances of people?
1: Um. Uh... It's Lukashenko's uh, typical uh, way of dealing with all of uh, his uh, potential li- rivals, rivals, because uh, even Tichonovsky's uh, uh, husband, uh, Sergei Tsikhanovsky, uh, he was put in jail uh, before all of these election processes even started. So, yeah, it's just basically Lukashenko's way of dealing with all of his enemies. He has been practicing in, practicing it even since he became a president. It was 1995. Oh, yeah, it was 1995. So, since this time, people just disappearing. If you're talking too much, you probably will disappear. If you have a uh, president's ambitions or something like that, you will probably disappear and rot somewhere in woods underneath
0: or some kind of city yeah and the fact that the fact that they do it preemptively i mean before the election happened before the results come out the fact that they arrest people doesn't i mean does it not show a bit like that the regime's a bit scared do they see the winds changing do you think there's any chance that uh i mean with them being under so much pressure with the eu sanctions with the recent Marches and protests that happened after the election. Do you think there's any chance that the regime will move and become more moderate, open up a bit, or are they just going to double down and become more authoritarian?
1: Actually, a lot of people says say that uh, Lukashenko's regime is just shaking. It's trying to hold on, hold just uh, from from the last. Uh, I don't know how to say. It. It's just trying to stay here as long as it possible and. Uh, if not Russia's support, it probably uh, was finished by now, as a lot of people think by, but uh, we have Russia that really supports uh, regime with money, with military power. And now it uh, just uh, pretty complicated to predict something because we, every day, uh, something that happens. And if you, and when you think that, okay, now it's probably can't be worse, regime just uh, surprises you with a new, new, I
0: don't know how to A new low, you know, yeah, they exactly. get even lower. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think we saw this, I mean, the most recent example is the arrest of uh, Roman Protasevich, I think that's how you say his name. Um, he was a journalist, a longtime political dissident, uh, a democratic activist, Um, And he was of course arrested on the Ryanair flight 4978 from Athens to Lithuania in Vilnius. And uh, apparently the FSB in coordination with the uh, Kievan uh, security services, they diverted the plane to make it land in Kiev and uh, they arrested him and his girlfriend. Um, Do you wanna talk a bit about him and his arrest?
1: Yeah, it was not Kyiv, it was Pinsk, uh,
0: Kyiv is in Ukraine.
1: Oh yes, uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it all happened just as you said. Uh, Roman and his girlfriend, uh, they were in Athens, um, in Greece. Uh, Roman uh, was um, he was working as a photojournalist. He did he did some photos of uh, Svetlana uh while she was. Uh, in Athens and yeah he said that he was um he, he noticed that people just follow him and people uh, those people acting really weird he said that um when he and his girlfriend were uh in the line to gate uh, to get on plane those people tried to do a uh, uh, Picture of uh, his documents, and so they probably wanted wanted to make sure that it's Roman, uh, and he's just getting on this plane, and yeah, basically, they just used uh, some military plane to when this plane or Ryanair's plane was crossing Belarusian air. Uh, yeah,
0: and. A- Apparently, they, uh, uh, from the reports, they called in a fake bomb threat so that they could have an excuse yeah. to ground the plane and search it. Yeah, uh,
1: someone uh, who um, was... Uh, кто-то, кто представлялся членом группы Хамас, uh, сказал, что есть бомба на борту самолета. Uh, но это письмо было высвано после того, как самолет уже взлетел в небо.
2: Uh-huh. Uh, some somebody who uh, pretended to be uh, a member of uh, the Hamas terrorist organization. Uh, they they claimed that, that there was a bomb on the on the um, on the plane, um, but the, you know that that claim came out factually after the fact that the plane uh, has already landed or has you know been forcefully landed. So. Yeah,
1: all of this started to happen actually after. Uh, those uh, people from Belarusian airport started to um, ask uh, pilots of uh, the Ryanair plane to land in minsk it was all just I, as all of people a lot of people think it was just um, made up uh, absurd yes it was absurd and it was just быстро um,
2: It was it was uh, even from a strategic point of view. It was done very sloppily, and it it speaks to how you know how how badly they wanted it done.
1: Yeah, it was uh, like uh, last minute uh, decision to land this uh, plane in Belarus because this plane actually was about seven or ten minutes. he was supposed to uh, cross Belarusian air border in 7 or 10 minutes, and then this plan just abruptly turns to Minsk, can start to fly to Minsk. And uh, we could uh, hear what they were talking about, uh, because also Belarusian uh, journalists made up some kind of this conversation because you actually can hear that uh, not the same people are speaking and it was also just a copy paste from some probably copy paste from different um sounds i don't know what to record conversation a uh, pre-recorded conversation conversations and uh, just to to show to people who watch this Belarusian propaganda tv that yeah we're right and that exactly what ha- what was that is exactly what was happening. That we don't like, but uh, people who have ears and who have brains can exactly understand that it was just made up and it was really uh, sloppy and um, not a lot of effort was put into making. this.
0: So they, what you're saying is that the is is this like common, like that the the government will use these post hoc. Um, reasons to justify their, their actions and they just kind of like make it up as they go along. Like for example, I think they, they were trying to say that um, Roman, although being like a clear supporter of democracy and freedom, now in the now in the Belarusian media they've trying to start say, oh, he's some far right guy. he was hanging around the Azov battalions, he's a Nazi. Mm-hmm. Um, you know these are clearly lies, but you, this is, seems common, you know it's like the out of the dictator's mm-hmm. playbook almost.
1: Yeah, it absolutely looks like uh, just uh, regime's uh, common tactics uh, to make uh, those uh, allies every time to cover what uh, they are doing. And yeah, Roman actually didn't uh, cover, I don't know, he, he just don't cover that he worked uh, in Ukrainian, on Ukrainian war, but he... Every time he was asked about this topic, he just used to say that he worked here as a journalist, and uh, nobody had some kind of uh, questions uh, about for him uh, for a really long time. And now, just suddenly out of nowhere, uh, those uh, Ukrainian territories starting to to say that he's. Uh, he wasn't working here as a journalist, that he just took her part in the war and, just, and he killed people
0: and yeah, so on. These are so such ridiculous claims even. I think I saw that one member of the Azov battalion came out and defended Roman and said, no, he was just here as a journalist. Uh, he said he was fighting a different kind of war, a war of words. He never picked up a weapon. And so we can see that, you know, like even the people that he's accused of associating with, are, are, you know, Pushing themselves away, they, they, you know, he wasn't some uh, far right fighter in the Azov battalion. He was just a journalist, as you said. They are reporting on a conflict which borders Belarus. You know, Ukraine and Belarus share a long northern border, and it's you know, it's all related. I mean, they share r- Russian ethnic kin in the east, and so it's very relevant to the Belarusian people. It makes sense that he would be reporting on such a story. It's, it's in his backyard, so to say. Yeah, and it uh,
2: actually
1: was ridiculous and fun. Funny when Hamas uh, started to, you know, telling that uh, you guys we just uh, we just doing our business in here. Just uh, we we don't land uh, some kind of plane in Belarus. <laughs> just to, you know, uh, that was actually funny. And uh, in Twitter even, and it was some kind of uh, screen from um, yeah, North Korea account that uh, they prohibited uh, their citizens to apply uh, about the Belarus, but it was fake. But it was also like, you know, then you law, even this uh, Korea don't support Belarus anymore. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I think uh, then we saw um, something kind of, not kind of, very disturbing come on, where uh, uh, Volman came on TV. He was on Belarusian state TV for almost an hour, and he was clearly distraught he started crying halfway through, and uh, at one point, you know, I, I saw his cuff links slip down of his wrist, and you could see marks on his wrist, you know, that clearly he'd been, like, mm-hmm. held, uh, possibly tortured. Um, is this common? I mean, the, the malpractice in, in uh, Belarusian jails, the mistreatment, is this just par for the course? I mean, can, can nobody expect him to get good treatment inside these jails?
1: Uh, you know, uh, nobody is surprised that Roman appeared on uh, propaganda TV, and he just uh, you know, people who are being tortured in jail they just would say anything to uh, to rescue their life. So nobody is surprised by by um, nobody believes this interview because it wasn't actually an interview. It just was. Uh, I don't know how to even. I don't know if it worked before that, when people say something because they were tortured, tortured yeah. So, um, I don't know if it, if it was common practice uh, before this revolution started, but uh, I actually watched an interview with people who worked, uh, who worked earlier in Belarusian military, uh, some kind of nature, because it has a lot of um, different parts of that. So uh, it wasn't as common as it became uh, since the, the revolution uh, became become happening. So, yeah, now people are being are get being tortured, they're just getting murdered. Uh, it, it probably happens every day, because uh, people just disappear on their way to... Or to work, or to grocery store, to everywhere, even if they don't do anything. Uh, there was one person that was um, thrown to jail because uh, he had the packaging of LG uh, monitor or something like that. And this monitor just had a white stripe on it. And he, he just had it um, placed uh, on his balcony this way some kind of way that it was uh, uh, seen from the streets that he says is that he has something white, red, white. And uh, we have this national flag um, that is uh, made from white, red, and white stripes. And uh, it, it became just a symbol of opposition in the uh, So yeah, you just uh, can be tortured. You just can easily, uh, Put in jail, you don't even need to have a reason for that. So it's not surprising that uh, uh, people are tortured in jail because uh, uh, if you're talking about Roman, he is like personal uh, enemy of Lukashenko mm-hmm. because he was uh, a part of this next, in English, it mm-hmm. writes like nexta media. Um, Resource, he was part of this team who was cardin- who coordinating protests, stage protests in um, August and September, and so yeah, Lukashenko has something personal about him. So yeah, one is tortured and um, nobody expects expects uh, him being treated uh, treated well.
0: So uh, just to clarify uh, for the people listening, um, Nexta, uh as far as I'm aware. This is a, one of the Telegram networks he operated where he would speak to other like-minded people on bringing democracy, freedom, you know, uh, the removal of the Lukashenko uh, regime um, to fellow, you know, fellow-minded people on, on Telegram, right?
1: Uh, correct. Telegram is actually one of the biggest media media if we're talking about uh, Telegram and uh, Actually, about medias and uh, journalism in Belarus, uh, it is really hard also to be a journalist in Belarus because uh, all of the independent media uh, channel um, journalists uh, have been also um, prosecuted and are in jail uh, or they they just escaped country for now. So yeah, it's probably no uh, independent media in Belarus
0: um right now all right well thank you very much for uh contributing um i think you you know you informed us about a lot you gave us a unique insight to the to for someone who's actually lived in belarus um you know it's hard to tell what's going on there for someone living in the west uh we have very distorted views of the east i mean it all comes through the bbc or cnn um and so it's hard to know what's actually going on or what might be even our own state propaganda so once again thank you very much you know it's uh it's a brave thing to do to talk about these type of things especially when you come from such a uh, an oppressive country and yeah just thank you for coming on uh th- i think this was great
1: thank you for having me here because i'm really grateful that somewhere wants to learn what's happening in belarus so yeah i'm really grateful
0: All right. I thought that was a really good interview. Um, I mean, she was pretty brave to come on. Speak to her experience, um, you know, and, and also being a woman, she got to give an experience uh, and talk about how like the sexism in in Eastern Europe, which is uh, I think something we take uh, advantage for here in the West, um, the liberties and the freedoms we enjoy, and often we forget like the brutal reality of uh, oppression and dictatorship in other countries, and so much so that like we have the you know, when our parliament's so ineffective, um, you know, people often look for a strongman and they think, oh, I wish Donald Trump would be like Putin. I wish we could have a strongman that just got stuff done. But you realize when you talk to someone like this, is there's real consequences to that. You know, like there's nothing pretty about a, a dictatorship. It might get stuff done, but it gets stuff done for itself. It, you know, like it's an end to a mean and, and you're not really the primary worry. You know, the worry about survival and their own realpolitik interests. And uh, I think it's just important for us to be reminded of that every time again, so we don't start um, unnecessarily admiring these strong men and dictators. Anyway, so that, that's basically gonna lead into a discussion here that I wanted to have between me and Jonah. And we, we have different opinions on this <laughs> as usual. And uh, you know, I, I'm in the pessimistic mindset that uh, Belarus will never be a democracy. It's gonna be a continued autocracy, a dictatorship, And that uh, if Lukashenko is removed from power, it'll only be by the hands of the Russians. The Russians will take over. They'll be annexed into a greater union with Russia. Um, Jonah, do you want to briefly explain your position?
3: Yeah, so obviously nothing is ever guaranteed in this world. And especially in Eastern European politics, it can always be a disaster waiting to happen. Um, But it's an incredibly inspiring moment to watch right now. You have thousands upon thousands of people marching in the streets, demanding democracy, demanding that a legitimate free and fair election is being held. You have people rallying around a political leader who's inspiring millions of young people who herself has come out of the people. Um, It's a very unique moment. Um, It reminds me of other really interesting moments in history, and I'll touch upon those when you get into it. But Obviously, nothing guaranteed, but I, I'm, I'm hopeful there, there's some real opportunities here. Oh right, yeah, so I think I think basically, if you want to oversimplify
0: it, this will this debate will be between democracy and EU integration versus autocracy and annexation by Russia. That's basically the the two opposite ends of this position here. And so what I'm going to do is kind of lay out historic precedents, which I believe has led me to this. You know, dismal conclusion, you know, like, I'm not happy about it, you know, like, of course, you want it to be a democratic free country. I'm just saying, in the realpolitik world, this is what I think is going to happen. So it's important to understand that Belarus isn't a naturally occurring nation state. Um, it's a, a strange anachronism of a Soviet era. Um, and it's only ever been part of former empires. Before the Soviets, as part of the Russian Empire. Before the Russian Empire was part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And this uh, has a lot to do with geography. Um, and geography has played immense uh, factors on the demographics, on the history, on the culture. And this is because they lie on the Great Northern European Plain. And so it travels between Eurasia, the Eurasian Steppe, and up into Germany and down into France. And... Uh, this is basically the marching ground of, of armies. Napoleon came through, the Nazis came through there. And it means that traditionally the Belarusians, the white Russians, the Ruthenians, however you want to describe these people, they traditionally get stomped on. And so the first time they achieved uh, true political independence is in 1991 when the Soviet Union collapses. And, uh, you know, they, uh, Lukashenko at that point, was uh, legitimately elected, um, we have to remember that, you know, he didn't uh, throw a coup, um, you know, some bill hall push, you know, like, no, no, he was elected in an election, which is widely perceived to be fair. However, he's uh, um, in such a situation, um, you know, like the geography, the history, this doesn't, end the his, you know, like the history of the uh, political institutions, the Soviet legacy, um, this doesn't breed democratic institutions. It, in fact, breeds kleptocracy, autocracy, and a unified executive state. Um, and this basically naturally results in uh, Lukashenko being a, a dictator. Um, he just uh, had the last election uh, in which he claims he got 80% of the vote, and it marked the 26th year of his of being in power. And so for many... Uh, fellow Russians, uh, he's, he's been the only leader they've ever known, for, for, especially for the young people. I mean, uh, he's all they've ever known. Um, so what I want to lay out here is is how this is going to go forward. You know, I, I don't, you know, people say, oh, we have these protests, we have these opposition leaders. It looks like the country maybe is going through a level of change. I don't buy it. Um, I think they've been straying towards Russia, they're economically dependent on Russia and every action that the EU has taken in the last two decades since Lukashenko's been in power has only distanced themselves. Um, so, for example, in 1994, uh, Belarus uh, signs the Budapest Memorandum. And this is basically the signaling to the West that we're we'll ready for integration, normalization. And this is when they surrendered all their nuclear weapons to Russia. Sit, but Ukraine also did this, and what what do we see in Ukraine right now? Um, they surrendered the nukes in a promise for Western guarantees. And when Russia invaded, annexed the Crimea, created two breakaway republics in the Donbass region, has the you know has the West resoundingly come to Ukraine's aid? Not really. They've been kind of left on their own, besides arms shipments. Um, they've been basically left to their own devices, and they've suffered. And so I don't think Belarus uh, sees uh, the West as a as a legitimate uh, guarantor of their sovereignty, Um, just as Armenia as well, another form of Soviet Republic and Georgia, another form of Soviet Republic. Both these countries um, had what are called colored revolutions in which uh, Russian Uh, old Soviet regimes were replaced with pro-EU, pro-democracy, pro-Western governments. And in every single time, Russia has unilaterally infringed on their sovereignty, or in Armenia's case, Azerbaijan did, and uh, nobody's come to their defense. They've been hung out to dry. And so I think this proves basically to Belarus that integration with the West isn't an option. and it's not gonna happen, not, just, you know, not only for historic precedents, but also due to current geopolitical uh, situations. Um, and so then we get to 1999, um, and this is the Union State Treaty. This is where I really think we have the beginning of the idea that Belarus will be uh, annexed by Russia, um, because they, the two countries pledge to uh, jointly integrate the, both nations gradually. And the goal is to create a unified currency, parliament, constitution, military, etc., all the aspects of government. Um, but this hasn't really uh, happened, you know. To play devil's advocate, you know, like uh, Belarus has kind of uh, straddled both positions, tried to play both both groups off each other uh, to keep their independence, you know, to let Lukashenko uh, retain his sovereignty and his authority within the country because obviously uh, Minsk joining Moscow would become the junior partner in the relationship um, with an inevitable loss of sovereignty. Um, So, you know, there's definitely struggles to them becoming unified with Russia, but this is like a legal precedent for them to follow. Um, And both leaders, uh, Lukashenko and Putin have over the last two decades made numerous comments uh, about integration, and although no formal action has been taken, because there's, there's, there's a lot of underlying effects which have, uh, which have uh, influenced this. So for example, uh, 45% of Belarus's exports involve Russia. Whether that's a transit fee, whether that's directly exporting to the country or if it's just going through, half the economy, at least the export economy, relies upon Russia. Um, and with the new sanctions, and placed upon Belarus, that only uh, weakens their ties with the West. I mean, every time the West uh, the West sanctions Belarus, they have to turn to Russia more and more. So at one point, you know, uh, they got a six hundred million dollar loan in twenty twenty, and they got a five hundred million dollar loan in in twenty twenty one. You know, and at at this point, Russia has given over like a one and a half billion dollars just to keep uh, Belarus quote unquote stable. Um, and so, you know, like Belarus is financially dependent on, on Russia. And I mean, even just an antidote, they, uh, at one point they were making overtures to the West. And, uh, so what did Putin do? He cut off the oil and gas. It didn't take long for it to get back on because Belarus realized you can't turn away from the people that keep the lights on. Um, and this is basically the basis for my argument. Um, History, geography, um, and economics basically inform the political system to be autocratic, and also make it more likely to integrate with the East than the West. Um, another thing is, uh, you know, as with many dictatorships, uh, Lukashenko operates a systematic kleptocracy, which uh, you know has robbed the country of resources, but uh, simultaneously ingratiated himself with the uh, Russian oligarchs, who are the primary primary beneficiaries of such a, such an arrangement. Um, most of the uh, Belarusian industry uh, is owned or heavily influenced by Russian oligarchs who have uh, substantial investments in the country. And uh, yeah, I I, you know, I just don't see economically them joining the EU or politically being viable. And I just want to go back to the security apparatus. This is my, my last reason here. I mean, uh, no country so Former Soviet republics has been saved by the West. You know they've all been left to Russia's devices. I don't see why this would be any different if Russia tried to annex Belarus from 1999 to 2009. We had the Chechen wars. Russia went back down in and they took it over, um, brutally repressed it, uh, burnt the capital city to the ground, basically, um, and then uh, what happened in 2004? Lukashenko rejected a Russian proposal for a referendum to rejoin Russia. And why did he do this? Probably the same reason why, you know, like, um, he realized that the Russians were going to get involved. And so he's doing everything to stop it. But he's kind of in a rock and a hard place. And, uh, you know, like, once he's gone, or once he feels that, like, he can tolerate the reduction of his sovereignty and the reduction of his authority, the only integration remains in the East. Um It's kind of paradoxical, you know, where it's like, they'll, you know, they're simultaneously threatened by Russia, but also dependent on them. And it it puts them into this really awkward place. But I think we also have to look at uh, places like Georgia. So we have the 2008 invasion. Um, This creates South Ossetia and Abkhazia, these independent republics. And what did Georgia do? They went, they kind of started chipping back into Russia's uh, geopolitical sphere of influence. They haven't really pursued better integration with the West, um, because they know it's not feasible, it's not plausible, Uh, you know, the EU's weak and inefficient and unwilling to really put itself out there. And I mean, this materialized again, 2014, they annexed Crimea, what does anyone do? Sanctions, bullshit, 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 nothing really happened. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's basically my argument, I I think there's a history of Russian uh, invasion, and meddling in the former Soviet republics, I think there's a, a historical precedence for them to be a part of Russia, and I think the EU's continuously pushed them away um, by imposing sanctions um, and and refusing to work with the country. You know, they, they they call it the last dictatorship in Europe. Well, if you if it's the last dictatorship, you need to you need to see what you can do to change that, not just isolate the country and and put it down in the bunker mentality like North Korea, where it's on its own. You know, like I think North Korea is honestly the most analogous country to uh, Belarus. It's a, you know, some tin pot dictator with a huge army and a suffering populace that revels in old Soviet cloys and state, you know, like state owned manufactories and and displays of, uh, you know, agricultural prowess, you know, look at our tractors or whatever, you know, it's a, it's, it's an acronym of a bygone era. And uh, when it eventually falters and fails, as we're seeing it now, I think we're going to see a whole bunch of those little green men, as they were called in, uh, in Crimea, um, the, the unmarked, uh, masked Russian soldiers, uh, supposedly. And uh, you know, I think we're going to see a repeat of that. They'll, they'll move in, take it over. And you know what? A lot of fellow Russians obviously, by the name, speak Russian. You know, they have a greater affinity with Russia and with Poland. You know, like most of them don't speak Polish. Most of them don't speak Lithuanian. Speak Russian. And, uh, you know, I, for all those reasons, I think that's the direction they'll go. But, uh, you know, uh, Jonah, what, what do you have to think? I mean, do you want to push back on anything I said there?
3: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I think the key point of my thing is, I agree with all that. There's an incredible amount of strong ties to history, an incredible strong man, strong military, right? It is, you know, as you said, it is a tin pot dictatorship. Lushenko is not, Lushenko is not weak, but Lushenko is weaker than he's ever been before. And I think that's the key, that the opposition has found a leader to rally behind someone they can kind of put forward as the legitimate president, the legitimate challenger, what have you, um, right? Obviously, the West is not recognizing her as the leader. I think that's a pretty purposeful move after kind of the failure in Venezuela to recognize a, a new president, and uh, then that just failed. I mean,
0: one Guaido so is a joke.
3: Well, Juan Guaido, I think, is, you know, I, I wouldn't call him a joke. He, he, he tried to do the right thing. He, he stood up for democracy. And unfortunately, he faced a brutal dictatorship. And, and this is the same thing, right? It, it, the odds are always in favor of the dictatorship, the guy with the military, the guy with the guns. That, But once again, there is the challenge of, do you really want to shoot your neighbors? Do you really want to shoot your friends? And that's the situation that Lushenko is putting. Him. There is certainly a lot of loyalists to him with inside the highest levels of the KGB in Belarus, inside the government, because he's been in control for 26 years. He's perpetually consolidated power in every which way he can. He reassigns industries uh, and businesses to his friends when people challenge him or someone he doesn't like gets too big for the britches or too wealthy. Typical stuff the case for democracy here is people are tired, right? That, you know, sure, they're used to the Russians. They're used to Lushenko. That's all they've known, but that's all they've known. And they know there's something better out there. And they're like, why haven't you, Lushenko? You've been here for 24 years. Our capital city, which used to be beautiful, you know, Minsk was a beautiful historic city, is falling apart. I mean, it's disgusting, frankly. Like, I mean, you just... There's not real sidewalks. There's not permanent running electricity. There's not permanent running water. People are looking and saying, why can't, you know, why are my son, why is my daughter, why is my mother, why is my brother who's done nothing wrong, who's not protested at all, why are they getting disappeared? And those people are going into the streets now. People who were honestly loyal or happy or content with the status quo are showing up in force. There's been obviously popular. Demonstrations in Belarus throughout his career, but it's never like this, right? I mean, we, you were interviewing a person who were hiding the identity of because Leshenko will try. You know, they're out. Of, uh, they're obviously out of the country, but you know, we're protecting their identity for the sake of their family and that such, right? Because it's brutal. But people would rather. You know, people are choosing to suffer. People are choosing to put themselves at risk to have to run now. Um, obviously that was there before, but it's every single kind of aspect of it has ramped up against Lushenko. Now, I mean, I think the key point obviously here is what is going to be the thing to tackle him. And it's obviously the relationship between Russia and the relationship between the EU, because he, you know, there could, the people don't have the arms, right? And the military for now is loyal to him. I think if he starts asking them to fire, on civilians, he's actually going to be done. Once he starts unleashing the military in full on civilians, there will be a popular uprising. And frankly, the military will likely turn against him and he will be done. So he's, I don't see that kind of happening in the same sense that we saw happened in Syria with al-Assad, with uh, Gaddafi and Libya, where there was very much a, military, a full-scale military turn. Obviously, he's using his powers of deep state right now to maintain control, maintain power. Um, but it's, it's a question of, honestly, can the EU push him to go too far? Right. And I mean, I think Lushenko himself is putting himself in this position because we're obviously uh, the the big thing that's happened recently is the Wagner group, which is Russian business interest. But frankly, it's a private military company uh, that deploys mercenaries throughout Europe, uh, Africa, South America other nations to try and protect Russian interests. Um, And he's arrested uh, and and captured a number of people who are associated work for the Wagner group. And that has incredibly angered the Russian oligarchy, Uh, and especially Putin himself, who is known to have likely have financial interests in everything, and including the Wagner group. Um, Putin has put incredible pressure on Lashenko to put this revolution down and releases friends. Uh, he is very much saying that I, you know, if you don't get this under control, I'm cutting off support. It's been a pretty open signal from Russia. And that doesn't surprise me in the sense that Putin himself is under an immense amount of international pressure right now. I mean, Putin, Putin is probably more secure than he's ever been at home because he just rewrote the constitution to make effectively allow himself to be president for life. Uh, which was, which he's been slowly working to forever. Um, So I I think it's a bit of a turning point, right? Because Putin will likely take his most extreme action on Belarus ever. And I think that will be the thing. And I, what I see kind of happening is very likely something like Ukraine, where the military is certainly with the president. There's, you know, there's a level of legitimacy, but not like true full legitimacy there. And that there's just a slow push, a slow push. And that in about a year or so, I think that Lushenko himself has put himself in a perilous position. I don't know if the regime itself would fall, but I think Lushenko is starting to see kind of the failures um, that he's created closing in around him, that those who are loyal to him within the state who recognize the need for Russian control, um, not Russian control, Russian support, excuse me, recognize that he's putting them in a worse, you know, not only has he completely isolated themselves from the EU, and of course the EU has a role in that, but he could have also made the moves towards opening up with the EU, democratizing, allowing economic aid from the EU to come in and help the country. I I think it's really a question of who topples Lyschenko with inside the regime, Uh, And what is that push? Because if it's someone who's loyal to Russia sees themselves wanting to restore that Soviet glory, well, then Belarus is not becoming a democracy. Belarus is just, as you said, is going to become Russia. I don't think that's going to happen though because you, you see it themselves with inside the Russian oligarchy, right? That at a certain point, when you start punishing the individuals inside the power structure, Um, because there's just so much natural wealth in the West that they want access to it. They don't want to be sanctioned away from it. So I very much see that if there's some sort of agreement with inside kind of Belarus, that within a shift within inside the current regime, you could see a lot of these leaders who want access to their kind of personal wealth outside of the Western world, getting that back through democratization Closer ties with the EU. And I kind of think about this in the sense of Hungary and Poland, which were other former Soviet states that have joined uh, the EU. I mean, the EU is no guarantor of a true, full, free, and fair democracy. Hungary and Poland have some pretty anti democratic uh, stuff happening, some pretty gross stuff happening, some pretty severe suppression of LGBT rights, women's rights, you know. So it's, you know, I'm not pretending that, like, I I think the pretend, there's a pretense or kind of a false imagination that everyone in the EU, all the EU is this wonderful, flourishing democracy, everyone's treated equally, everyone's safe. It's not true, right? The EU is is a complicated beast. um, And I think they see the power of taking Belarus in. And if there was that real opportunity to get someone in there new, lift the sanctions and welcome them, maybe not fully into the EU right away, right? You see that constant battle with Turkey in the same sense, but certainly closer relations and closer ties. So I, you know, I don't see it as like a full jump to democracy immediately, but I certainly see them on the path where in 10 years they could be where Turkey kind of used to be. I mean, Turkey has obviously backslid recently, so it's not the best example, but there is going to be, I certainly see a shift to democracy and I see a weakening of his, Lashenko's internal strength in the regime that I think is going to force him to go in the next two years, which will lead to a shift of maybe not full democracy, but at least some major freedoms that Belarus has never seen.
0: Yeah. I I agree with you a lot on a lot of what you said there. I think, uh, for example, I mean, the idea that, uh, you know, the, a revolution will will what it, or you know some sort of internal uh, political strife is what will cause um a change to either to go pro East or, or pro West. I think, you know, that's that's very correct, right? Like uh um I think the biggest impediment uh, impotent to uh uh Belarus joining either Russia, being like right annex by the country or Belarus joining the West is the is Lukashenko because I mean let, let's just go through. I mean if Lukashenko became part of the EU, he'd immediately be tried in the Hague and you know they'd, they'd, they'd put him up for war crimes and he'd be executed in the Hague. that's, you know, that's just what will happen. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be just like Serbia. Um, and alternatively, if uh, Lukashenko is you know follows through with these agreements and uh, you know slowly must the country be annexed by Russia, well that mean you know like <laughs> once the guy that's in charge of the country right, you know, like, the ultimate authority you, you know it, it may be kind of hard for him to deal with the reduced role and uh i you know i don't that, that you know i think that's one of his primary motivators for not joining Russia is that he would be uh you know he would just become another you know uh provincial leader not not a state leader and you know there's always the chance you know with putin being a former kgb member there's always a the chance that lukashenko runs into some nerve agent you know like you know like that he, he gets disappeared you know um and because he, he'd be seen as a uh as a credible threat and a different uh, um, source of power and influence to uh, Putin, which you know can't be tolerated by a, by a, a unitary executive system, um, you know there's only allowed to be one authoritarian. Um, and I, so I think I think that's right. Like Lukashenko is the biggest uh, issue here right now, and his removal will basically, you know, and who and who does his removal will decide where the country goes.
3: I think the big thing for me is Joe Biden, particularly, um, but also other G7 EU leaders are looking for a way to pick a fight with Putin and looking for a way to pick a fight they can win. Um, Because, you know, as much as they can sanction Russia, they can hit it with economic problems. At the end of the day, Putin's secure. Putin's the wealthiest individual in the world. So he doesn't really care. Right. It's a question about his power and how can you threaten that power well taking belarus away from him would be a really big blow because it, it, it's kind of seen as particularly for him right he's reintegrated under the russian belarus treaty he he sees it as kind of us i mean he treats it and it very much is a, a state of russia to some extent a province of russia you know it would not function it would collapse without russian support So I think the opportunity is if we see something like Ukraine, where Lushenko has the regime, internal regime, turn on him. And then you, of course, have the Americans, gung-ho as ever, going in to stabilize the state um, to, you know, of course, in air quotes, right? Because when has that ever worked? Um, And then once again, you're ending up in the, you know, kind of a rock or a, Ukraine situation where the U.S. is effectively in there holding one part of the country and then Russia's in there holding another part, right? I I, I think that's probably the most likely scenario for kind of major uh, change in the sense of it fits within the current power structures and how these politicians have played uh, with international politics. And of course, the people who are caught in between all of this are the normal Belarusians who would like to just have a, a basic democracy and not to be disappeared and tortured. And, you know, when they go to jail, it's because they actually committed the crime. Yeah. So I, I agree with Laurie you said. Though. I think,
0: uh, you know, I think the U S regardless of the president is basically perpetually picking a fight with Russia as an excuse to sanction them slowly diminish their power. This is just, you know, great power politics. You know, they do the same thing with China um, or any other substantial threat. and. Uh, the only thing I disagree with is I don't think it's possible. Um, so Obama oversaw the pivot to Asia, and that meant a majority of U.S. forces were redeployed into that region. Uh, you know, besides the, the still substantial numbers that are in the Middle East. Uh, but by all estimates, it would be months um, for uh, the U.S. to fully mobilize uh, sufficient forces in Europe. And so I, I think there's a time factor. Where it's like any action. They just don't have the immediacy to actually do something, and it, we've seen in Ukraine, Georgia, uh, Armenia, just an unwillingness to actually intervene anyway. So I doubt the EU would use military force. I mean, we're talking about a fraction military amongst many different countries—you know, French, German, Spanish, Italian, whatever—all speaking different languages. This isn't going to go well. You know, like the coordination alone isn't going to isn't going to work, and uh, and I think the biggest. So first of all, like I think rule out invasion, you know, like I don't think Russia is going to physically invade. I don't think uh, the EU is going to physically invade. It's just not going to happen. Um, so that leaves you some sort of like soft power push or like uh, an internal coup. Well, <laughs> a facet of many of these dictatorships, and this isn't uh, strictly to Belarus, this is around the world, um, is that they, they kind of know this is going to happen. Uh, although the military um, is inherently a, a defender of their position, you know, a lot of dictators come up through the military, they see it as their their natural um, base. Um, but uh, they uh, they don't trust them as well because they realize, you know, the greatest protector of them can also be the greatest threat. And so you get this, uh, you know, you get these circular and, and uh, convoluted system of internal uh, bureaucracies and internal spy agencies and armies and militias and paramilitary groups, which are all watching each other and are all doing something. And it it impedes the ability of one group to effectively function and, and uh, go against the state because you'll always have another division of another, of another security, uh, group of another, you know, part of the different apparatus of the government, which will always be overwatching you and easy to like point out the internal enemy, you know, quote unquote. And, uh, so I I don't I don't really see a a coup as being likely, or you know an internal revolution by one of these groups because uh you know they got eyes on you everywhere, um you know if the army tries something the FSB will counter it. If the FSB tries something, the paramilitary groups will will stand up, and uh, so, you know it, it's not so cut and dry. And also, I think the idea of the U.S. being involved in Belarus in an actual you know, hot war is kind of absurd. I think uh, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, Libya, Yugoslavia, I mean, on and on and on, right? Like the U.S. has, you know, since the 90s been in constant state of war, basically. And I think the the, dire, the desire for military intervention has decreased significantly. I think uh, part of the reason why we, the only reason why we see uh, continued uh American military presence um, across the Middle East has been the uh, the use of uh, drones, mechanized warfare, and kind of like standing back and uh, moving into an intelligence role. I mean, throughout Afghanistan and Iraq, we're seeing this right now. The U.S. is basically only doing airstrikes and military op- uh, intelligence. Um, the a lot of the ground force, you know, boots on the ground, is left up to the locals. Um, that we saw this in particular in Iraq with the rise of the popular mobilization units because the American army just simply wasn't able to contend with ISIS. And so so I really doubt that there'd be some sort of like full scale intervention by the US. Uh, you know, feel free to rebuttal me though. You know, like, what, what are your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, I mean, never rule out a full scale intervention by the US. It's one of its favorite things to do uh seems like an american pastime in this at this point i mean it seems like we have a new intervention every single decade so i mean it would be you know it is the new decade so it would be the time um no but i mean in all seriousness i do agree with you that i don't think a full-scale invasion is likely i see but there is eighty thousand american troops in germany you know hundreds of thousands of troops spread out across bases in Europe so the, the idea they can't mount a military response or at least some sort of as I'm sure they would call it stabilizing response I, I don't think that's accurate I do think they could do it the reality is though that Russia borders Belarus and Russia has uh, a, a massive military force that they can amass on the border right so it, once again that's why I see it kind of devolving into a situation like Ukraine where you're going to have certain you know you if Lushenko goes, I mean, when Lushenko goes, there's almost certainly going to be a pretty immense power struggle. And Belarus is right now on the verge of a civil war. It has you know, dozens, if not potentially hundreds of mercenary groups operating inside the country, either employed by the government, the Russian government, pirate contractors, right? And all it takes is one of those groups to be stupid and set off a, a conflict by opening fire on a group of people. Um, you know, so it's a powder keg waiting to explode and we really don't know what happens. I mean, I am, I am hopeful that a democracy emerges because I think that's where the people are, right? And we have seen moments like that, right? Where for kind of those brief moments, democracies have emerged in Egypt, uh, in other places, in, in Turkey, right? And then they, but then they backslide, right? And so I think we're having a democratic moment right now I think is certainly pushing towards democracy, but it's all about a question of what's the thing that lights the powder keg, right? So if it's Lushenko taking far more aggressive action, and I think his recent kidnapping of the journalist Roman—I uh, can't remember his last name right off the top of my head—but um, I mean, you're seeing you—you you know, you and I use Telegram, and we know that most of the opposition in Belarus is and a lot of other places are using telegram as well because they can't track you as well and all those things on it. Um, you know, but you see chatter on the social channels there from uh, the torture video, right. His kind of forced apology to Lushenko, but you've seen a lot of increased traffic of people are just getting angrier at him. Right. He's not, he's not finding a way to suppress them anymore. Um, so I think, you know, it, it, for me, this feels like it's the end of Lushenko, right? But it's now it's now a question of, is it the start of a democracy? That's the big question. I think there's a lot of people, heroes that the public is rallying around, that there's a lot of great political organization, news sources. The opposition is connected. The opposition is ready, right? I mean, if they were asking, you know, there is a, the Sepetlana Taliskanaya, who is the Claims she's the a valid elected president. I mean, you never know what those result. Lushenko, pro- in my mind, I think Lushenko probably still did win the most votes, but he probably just pumped up his margin by an insane amount. Um, but, you know, we never know because the election's rigged. So, but there, there is a legitimate alternative government. There is a legitimate alternative opposition there. They're organized, they're connected. They're out in the streets. They have the popular support of the people now. So it's a question of which way does uh, does it roll? And we have no clue. Um, I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic. I think it could be an incredible opportunity or it could just turn into an awful bloody conflict and it could be a nightmare. And so the best thing you and I can do is talk about it and make sure that we shed some light on what's going on there.
0: Um, I think one of the biggest issues is that, you know, and you mentioned a civil war I don't think a civil war is possible um, under the Lukashenko regime. I think, as I mentioned, the different facets about the security services, about Russian support. I just never think it would materialize. It'd be crushed immediately. Um, you know, if, and if there's any inklings of a of a popular uprising or whatever, it'd just be crushed. Um, but I do think a civil war would happen if the uh, if a new government came in into effect on the left, because what they unified by is anti Lukashenko, you know, like, they don't have any unifying factors beyond, we like the EU, and we don't like Lukashenko. Okay, well, like, you know, that, that runs out pretty fast once you're an actual government. And that's when you'll see actual, you know, strife, and uh, internal divisions. I mean, we see this in basically every single uh, revolution where it's, you know, whether it's the Paris Commune or whatever, right? Like um once once they get rid of the uh, external enemy you you start looking for internal ones and uh, that's when things really devolve into a nasty place and uh as you said I think the the best thing you know we can't do anything about it all we get to do is uh watch and so talking about it's really important and uh, that's why I loved having our guest on I mean you know she she spoke to so many things that we just take advantage for here and uh when we're, you know, when we're in a place right now where like a lot would, Canada's undergoing a lot of historical revisionism. We, you know, like we're really questioning ourselves. Um, and there's, you know, uh, there's a lot of flagellation about our colonial past. And we just have, I think sometimes step back and realize how good we have it here. Canada's a paradise compared to other countries. And, uh, you, you know, the grass may be greener but you never really realize how good you have it until you're in a dictatorship. And, uh, you know, final thoughts there, uh,
3: Jonah? Yeah, well, I mean, I agree with most of that. I mean, I know you and I are going to get into the debate about Canada's history. But, uh, you know, obviously, you know, where it is now, it, it you know, is a paradise, really, like in terms of democracy and like social protections. And, you know, if it, it is it's a pretty darn nice place to live compared to a lot of other places in the world. So, I, uh, you know, grateful for what we do have here. And I mean, but them coming on the show and talking about what's going on what they've experienced and just you know being willing to take that thread onto their life i just can't imagine it so i mean it's a there's some really brave people out there right now demanding democracy i'm really impressed with them and i'm just hopeful that they succeed and i I give them all my love and support and uh hopefully we can spread the message of some of the bad stuff that's going on out there for sure
0: um you know so i just want to say thank you to everyone who's listening out there uh today we talked about belarus democracy freedom and russia um and uh you know we look forward to like keeping you out of the next time i think as jonah said we have a lot of interesting topics coming up and uh we'll, we'll be discussing more in the future